Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and my special guest today, who is no stranger to the show, is Art Carden. He is professor of economics at the Brock School of Business at Samford University and a frequent contributor to Forbes and other popular magazines and scholarly journals. He is the co-author of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich with Deirdre McCloskey, and he is here today to talk about the bourgeois deal. Art, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I have a set of really, really thick books. There's three of them sitting on my shelf. And I have read about 20 to 30% of each one of them, because for whatever reason, I just was a lot of effort to get through all of it. And it was written by Deirdre McCluskey. And I hear that this book, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, is sort of the too long didn't read version of that. Is that accurate or is there more to it? So that's actually exactly what we set out to do. So Dr. McCluskey has this three-volume set on what she calls the bourgeois era. And several years ago, we were having lunch, and she asked me if I wanted to be the co-author on a book that would condense all of that into something that could be assigned in a class or something that somebody could read on a plane. And whenever a scholar of Professor McCluskey's stature asks you to collaborate, then you kind of clear everything off your desk and say yes. <laughs> and it was quite an experience, and I learned a ton. What was the experience like? Was this more like you had to go through the books and summarize things? Or did you have any input on your own through that process to like update it? Because I mean, the first book, I think it was like 2006. So there's got to be better examples of some of the content that's in there. There's probably newer data that you have to access. Yeah, I did make some genuine contributions to the book. So it is kind of legitimately McCloskey and Cardin. But yeah, a lot of it was trying to find a way to distill her overall story and to summarize, again, the contributions that she made in this gigantic three-volume set into something that's a little bit more accessible, something that's a little bit more yeah. palatable. And we recycle a lot that is in the three-volume set, but we also take a few new perspectives on it that are kind of not really there in the other three books. And I think it's a tighter exposition than the trilogy. Yeah, okay. Well, I have to say that the writing style and... I would even say the narration style, because I actually listened, I have a physical copy of the book, but I also listened to it more recently here, was really attractive. And by that, it had the right amount of sarcasm. And, it, <laughs> <laughs> and the right, yeah. just the right amount of like, profet- it was very, it was interesting because it was like, wow, this is like high class sarcasm and like all these somewhat asides or whatever. And the narration, whoever was narrating the book did an excellent job of that. I'm curious about your writing style as compared to hers, do you find that they're very similar? Or did you have to sort of write in one voice? How did that work? Because I can clearly see that it has that same sort of cadence to her writing. Right. So did you have to adapt in that direction or, or what? Yes. Yeah. So it's obviously, you know, she's the first author on the book and it's largely her project. So yeah, we needed to adapt it to fit the voices she has in mm-hmm. her other work. And it's been fun doing that because I look at some of the other writing that I was doing outside of that and seeing how my own style changed mm-hmm. as I was working on this project and kind of trying to write in this synthesis of her voice and mine. And there's actually a lot of things I've written now and I've kind of looked at and said they read very much like something that McCloskey would write mm-hmm. in part because of what we did during this collaboration. 
has that influenced your writing elsewhere? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I, I would have to like sit down and do a really, really systematic study, but I think there's there are elements in my writing that are more McCluskey-esque than they were when we started working together. Yeah. Well, I think that's really an, a positive development in a lot of ways for any individual to know that they're being influenced by people who are I want to say the words ahead of you. Obviously, she's ahead of you in age and experience. And I don't mean to diminish your contribution there, but you know what I'm saying. Well, is yeah. That <laughs> she's really popular, well-known and revered. And there you are being influenced by her very, very strategically and directly. She occasionally is mentioned as a possible dark horse candidate for the Nobel Prize. My name is <laughs> never going to be in that conversation. So <laughs> I know where I stand in the... Well, not yet. In we'll the see. academic hierarchy. Uh, I really doubt it. <laughs> well, let's get into some of the contents of the book. And I know that there are a handful of words that I want to bring up, partly for the sake of our listeners to understand what some of these words mean, that we'll kind of tie them all together a little bit. What does the word bourgeois mean? I've often sort of made a shorthand in my head that it kind of sort of means values of the middle class. But I think it's probably a lot more deep than that. Well, I think that's actually a really good characterization. It's the values and habits of the middle class. People who are in the middling station of life, People who might be small landowners, people who might be merchants, or people who work for a living but may not necessarily sweat for a living. That could be one way to think about the bourgeoisie. Mm. So okay. when I hear bourgeois, that's what I think about. In the case of the United States, I think of the bourgeoisie being families living in suburbia, being the classic example of the American bourgeoisie. 2.7 kids, white fence, dog, the whole deal. Yeah. How would you characterize their virtues? Yeah, so the virtues of the bourgeoisie are just generally the mundane virtues, I think, that we think of as being a life well-lived. Honesty, integrity, showing up on time. There are the pagan virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and prudence. Then there are the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And these are on display pretty regularly in bourgeois life. So simple things like honoring your commitments is a bourgeois virtue. And that's something that is not necessarily shared elsewhere in various social hierarchies. Mm. So I'm going to kind of nerd out for a second here. As it. of this recording, the Kenneth Branagh version of Henry V is available to stream on Amazon Prime without having to pay extra for it. And I was watching this the other day, and near the end of the play, after he's conquered France, he's talking to a French princess who he wants to make his bride. And he tries to kiss her. And this is sort of scandalous because she says it's not the custom of the ladies in France to kiss before people are married. And Henry says, oh, Kate, custom curtsies before great kings or something like that. <laughs> and then he says, we're the makers of manners. So there's a sort of upper crust of people for whom normal rules kind of don't apply. And or at least who think that these kind of rules don't apply. And then there's the bourgeoisie, people who say, you follow a lot of social conventions. And again, you do things like pay your bills on time because that's the right thing to do. And the exercise of these bourgeois virtues is at the center of the great enrichment. Something that's really important to keep in mind is that we are not saying the bourgeoisie itself is especially virtuous relative to other groups or relative to other classes mm. of people. Thomas Sowell used to say, right, he still says, that he used to offer an A to any one of his students who could find anywhere in the work of Adam Smith where he says anything nice about business people. And he can't do it. Like one of his, one of his most famous passages says that 
people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment or diversion, that it doesn't end up in some conspiracy against the public or contrivance to raise prices. So it's not that the bourgeoisie is especially virtuous, it's that these habits and these practices and these virtues that tend to be exercised primarily in bourgeois contexts are conducive to long-run economic growth. Now, you just used a word a little bit ago called the great enrichment. That was actually one of the next words on my list here. I, in my mind, imagine the great enrichment as exemplified by the actual more important hockey stick graph. Is that what you're referring to or is, how would you describe it in words? Yes. Yes. So the great enrichment actually you could probably think of as a set of hockey. The big hockey stick that you're referring to is the increase in income per capita that's happened over about the last roughly 250 to 300 years. We went from a world where people lived on the modern equivalent of roughly three or four or five dollars a day. I spent about three and a half dollars on a cup of coffee yesterday. So like I'm imagining trying to spread out those resources, three dollars and fifty cents to pay for all of my food, clothing and shelter for a day. And it sounds pretty miserable. But that was the standard of living of most people for almost all of history. And then, again, within the last couple of centuries, we've gotten something that's been historically unique. And that thing that's historically unique is sustained economic growth. Mundane economic growth of something like 2% per person per year, which is what it's been in the United States for about the last 200 years, has meant a huge increase in standards of living. And a huge increase in standards of living not for the descendants of Henry V, but rather for the descendants of Henry V's peasants and Henry V's soldiers and the people that Henry V ruled. That's what we're really looking at. Another one of the hockey sticks you might think about is a hockey stick of life expectancy. In England and France, which were among the richest countries in the world at the turn of the 19th century, it was under 40. And now, even in countries like Nigeria, life expectancy is over 60. So you can expect to live longer in some of the poorest parts of the world today than you could in some of the richest parts of the world just a few decades and especially even a few centuries ago. So that's a second hockey stick. And then kind of a third hockey stick is the global population, which was extremely low for almost all of history, growing explosively again a couple of centuries ago. And now there are over 8 billion people in the world. So there are a lot more of us. We live a lot longer and we have much higher standards of living. That's what we're thinking of when we're thinking about the great enrichment. The amount of human flourishing that can take place today is by orders of magnitude greater than it's ever been. Can you go back and nerd out a little bit on that 2% per year? Because I don't think people realize that when they hear 2%, it's like, oh, okay, 2%. Yeah. What are the implications of that once you get to decades later? Yeah, so 2% per year basically says... So you can use something, what's called the rule of 70 or the rule of 72, depends on which book you're looking at or who you're asking. And very roughly, if you divide 70 by the growth rate, that will give you the number of periods it will take for something to double. So we're going at 2% per year, income per capita is doubling every 35 years. Income per capita is doubling roughly every generation. And sometimes it might be hard to see, and it especially might be hard to see from day to day and year to year. But eventually you get to the point where if you look back over the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you see that the world is a very, very different place. Just using the 2% growth rate and kind of off the top of my head. So let's suppose you start with, let's just say the American standard of living was $5 a day in modern terms in 1820. So 1855, it's 10. 1890, it is 20. 1925, it's 40. 1960, it's 80. 
1995, it's 160. And now it's might be in the neighborhood of some $300 a day that people are able to consume in the United States, whereas the average person in the United States mm-hmm. is able to consume. And if that continues growing, imagine, again, standards of living doubling every generation. We're looking at our grandchildren being, let's see here, well, that, our grandchildren being extremely wealthy by modern standards. And just as we are now unimaginably wealthy by historical standards. Okay, so I'm going to quote Thomas Sowell back at you and say that people don't live in quintiles or quartiles or whatever he said, and basically say, so you're using, push back a little bit and just to let you respond. I mean, I kind of have a sense of what the response is, but, and I'm aligned, but this is due diligence as a podcast host, right? Sure. People don't live in data, right? There are real people who are still poor out there. What about them? Apparently, there's still people sort of left behind from the great enrichment that the average person has. But we're talking about the non-bourgeois and the people who are on the margins, which is obviously something that Christians should care about. So what do you make of their plight? So the coolest story that nobody knows is about exactly that question. What has happened to the poor around the world? And an exercise for the listener would be to go to this amazing website called Our World in Data, and it'll show you our world, and data. And since the late 1970s, roughly, which is when China and India especially started to liberalize, the absolute number of human beings living in extreme poverty, defined by the World Bank, I think it's $1.90 a day, I want to say, in roughly $2011. I'm forgetting what the exact number is. Yeah, sure. Anyway, it's extreme poverty. So the absolute number of people living in extreme poverty has fallen since... 1979, 1980 or so. All of this while the world's population has grown from, I think it was something like three and a half billion to over eight billion. Indeed, even on the eve of this, the vast majority of the world's population still lived in extreme poverty. The greatest story never told in some sense is how over about the last four decades, the absolute number of human beings living in extreme poverty has gone from over a billion or around a billion to just about half a billion. And this in a world of now more than 8 billion people. So extreme poverty is a much smaller fraction of the human experience and the absolute number of people, I can't stress that enough, who live in extreme poverty is lower today than it has ever been. And again, this is in spite of a rapidly growing population. I was just going to ask what the distribution of population growth has been. I could imagine someone saying, well, that's because all the wealthy countries are having more kids than they used to because they're wealthy and that skews the data. And like, in other words, there are poor countries, poor regions, I should say more specifically, that people are just not getting as wealthy as fast as other countries are. That might be true to an extent, but one of the phenomena, again, that we've seen over the last couple of decades has been sort of the emergence of a global middle class. So a lot of the emphasis in places like the United States on income inequality within high-income countries obscures the much bigger and I think much more important phenomenon of rising income equality around the world. And with respect to things like fertility rates and stuff like that, the actual empirical relationship is the other way. There's a negative correlation between per capita income and fertility, number of children per woman, Mm -hmm. number of children per household, things like that. So that I don't think is a story that would really hold up. Okay. You keep name dropping the next word I wanted to ask you about. 
you talk about liberalize and you use the word liberalism in this book very liberally and you're using it in the way that I often use. And I am so glad you didn't put the word classical in front of it every single time you used it because I'm really tired of people using the word liberal to mean left of center American politics, right? Because as libertarians, I mean, I know Jeffrey Tucker says his preferred word is liberal because that's what we are as opposed to progressive, which is very illiberal, as opposed to conservatives, which are most often illiberal. So what is liberalism and why did you not have to always put classical in front of it? Yeah, so liberalism, part of what we want to do, and this is a battle we're almost certainly going to lose. <laughs> part of what we would like to do is to <laughs> no, recover. No, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We'd like to recover the word liberal to mean what liberal actually means, or at least should mean. And liberal just basically means leave people alone. It is a way of viewing the world that says that there is no natural hierarchy of human beings, that everybody is equal in dignity, and that it is not your job or your prerogative, especially, to boss other people around. So Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations, when in one passage actually where he's criticizing the French finance minister, refers to what he calls the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice. And this liberal plan basically says, kind of allow, well, indeed, stepping back just a little bit, it says, you're not even in a position to decide what people should be allowed to do and not allowed to do, because who made you the ruler? Even if we adopt that word or use that word allow, it would just say, allow people to do whatever they want to do, again, provided they're not actively harming somebody else, and just kind of get out of the way. That part of what it means to lead a dignified and flourishing life is to have the liberty of self-determination, the right, again, to find and live by your own values without anyone imposing any of that on you. And a phrase you often use in the book, and I know McCluskey does in the other book, is the word have a go. That is a real key aspect of this. Yeah, so with respect to the economic sphere, a lot of what we're digging into and a lot of what we're dealing with is this right to do exactly that. The right to come up with a cool, what you think anyway, is a cool new way to do stuff. And importantly, to not have to ask anyone's permission to do it. If you think that something is a good idea and you can convince enough other people to back your venture, then you give it a shot. And if you earn profits, that's the market's way. And by the market, I just mean everybody with money to spend. That's their way of saying, do more of that. If you earn losses, that's the market's way of saying, do less of that. That ultimately is the test. And whether or not you're actually making people better off is something that's ultimately going to be tried before the bar of people's willingness to buy whatever it is you happen to be selling. And one of the things that's cool about this, it is the process by which we decide which new ideas and new innovations actually work in some meaningful sense. Because everybody can have ideas. Everybody can have ideas. Whether those ideas actually make other people better off, though, is a little bit more ambiguous. And that's one of the reasons why in this book and elsewhere, we emphasize the importance of profit and loss tests. Hmm. Hi, this is Gregory Vouse. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then 
be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. So let's talk a little bit more about that because profit and loss is a really key part of capitalism. You lamented that we're going to lose the fight over the use of the word liberal. It does seem, this is like my only, I wouldn't say gripe, but like my pet peeve with, well, McCluskey at first saying that like capitalism is not the right word to Mm -hmm. use for what we're describing here and that she wants to use the word innovism, which is not as catchy. Mm -hmm. Or not as damning, I should suppose, because that's what capitalists was meant to be. What do you make of the term innovism? How would you describe it? And why is it a better word than capitalism in either your or McCluskey's mind? Maybe you can diverge a bit from her. I don't know. Where are you on it? So this is one of the things that I wonder about and would be interested in seeing somebody study is why we real liberals are so bad at naming things and so bad at setting the terms of the debate. Because... (laughs) McCloskey's exactly right that capitalism is a terrible word to describe what we mean when we're talking about capital. Because most people think of it as anything that advances the interest of capitalism. Or a lot of people think of it as just evil incarnate. Innovism, we think, is a slightly better word to describe what we're actually trying to describe. Even though I don't either of us really think it's a particularly good word. Because we're talking about not just private ownership and exchange of the means of production but private ownership and exchange of the means of production in a world where people really, really value and embrace other people trying new things, where people honor and esteem other people for trying new things, for coming up with ways to solve problems, for people basically saying, well, it doesn't have to be that way. And there, Hmm. I think, is what innovism captures that a word like capitalism doesn't. Though, once again, I'm not sure that innovism is really going to take off as a new descriptor of, again, what we really want to understand. When I think about capitalism, and when McCloskey thinks about capitalism, a lot of times we think about things like just increasing saving and piling up more capital goods. But the stuff of economic progress is not doing more of the same thing or having more of the same tools. It's having new tools. It's having better tools. It's having improved ways to live, improved ways to consume. It's not just having, say, something like more television sets but having better television sets that we can hook up to the internet and where we can like watch almost anything. I mentioned Henry V streaming on Amazon Prime. This is something that 20, 30 years ago would have just been remarkable. The idea that you can just watch whatever you want to watch, whenever you want to watch it, either because it's already on one of the streaming services, or even if it's not, you can just pay a few bucks for it on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And again, watch it, watch whatever you want to watch, whenever you want to watch it. Henry V himself could not stream on Amazon. No, he could not. Henry V would not have been able to stream on Amazon. He would not have had Hulu. He would not have had Netflix. He wouldn't have been able to watch Stranger Things. His life paled in comparison to the lives that we live. And it's neat, too, because people say something like, okay, big whoop. So you can watch stuff whenever you want to watch it on Amazon. But what about the finer and most important things in life? And to that, I would kind of reply that, well, that is at least an input into some of the finer and more important things in life. So I was traveling over the last couple of days. So I got to watch like the first 20 minutes of the new episode of The Mandalorian with my kids before I left. Then they watched the rest of it. I watched the rest of it when I got to, I was in St. Louis. So I watched the rest of it while I couldn't sleep that night and just got home this morning and am planning to watch the new episode of The Bad Batch, which is a, another Star Wars show that's on Disney Plus mm-hmm. with the kids. And that's really, really cool that the streaming services like Disney Plus and things like that offer us the flexibility to 
come together and do what we want to do when we want to do it. And it may seem silly that my kids and I really, really enjoy watching Star Wars shows together, but this is really meaningful family time for me. It's about much more than just sort of shallow convenience or shallow consumption or things like that. It's the existence of streaming services makes my life better in every meaningful sense. Well, and that's only one side of the equation. In my mind, you also have to take into account that the people who are on the other side of that screen, they're not over there. But you know what I mean? Like the people who are on screen have the luxury of not working in the field for the $3 a day or for that matter, just sort of being non-existent because the aforementioned population growth, they're able to pursue an artistic drive, their creativity. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, it's hard work. And you could even say that it's even sweat hard work, right? Depending on where you're shooting and depending on what you're doing, it's hard work to be a good actor on the order of being on Disney Plus, right? Like there's that. But even all of the lesser things that never see the light of day that no one else will ever hear of, you have the opportunity for people to live their best selves, to use a common phrase that's not that great, actually. But it's true. People have that ability to even pursue it at all, to have a go, to innovate. Right, You're talking about innovism and how it's a lot about the attitudes of people wanting to create a better wheel, create a better bread slicer, create a better this or that. I mean, what was it, 10, 15 years ago, we got better bottles of water by some person's standards because it uses less plastic. Someone invented that, and it required all of that. And I have to think that a lot of leftists are thinking like, well, we want better things, and we want things that are better for the environment and better for our health, but they don't want people to profit off of that to happen, right? And it's like, well, you can't have this both ways, right? You have to give people the ability to want something and not simply be like, oh, well, I need a better water bottle designed so that it uses less plastic. It's like, well, you earn the ability to say, I get a few million bucks or whatever the amount of profit is useful. That's an attitude that you and I obviously wholeheartedly embrace. And it's not exactly about the consumption stuff, like the sit down at night and watch television, which you and I would probably agree benefits us in a handful of ways. But it's not the same as other pursuits And so I think that's what most people critique, which you already addressed. It's like, well, what about the finer things of life? What about the education of of ourselves? We have those opportunities to talk about as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it provides greater scope for all sorts of different things. Again, like I mentioned, watching watching Henry V the other day, or I'm a big Shakespeare fan. So we have in our Amazon library, a bunch of different adaptations of various Shakespeare plays that I will watch or that we will watch periodically. So it's, I think, a straw man or, well, maybe not a straw man, but it doesn't really get to the point to say, yeah, but what about the finer things in life? Well, because it it increases scope for silly stuff and the finer things in life. Now, obviously, you're probably making poor use of your liberty and prosperity if you're watching seven hours of one show every night. Yeah. But that's not what we're doing, and that's not what most people are doing. A couple of things that really sort of stick out to me here are the sort of attachment to a need for guarantees that we see Mm -hmm. on both left and right. That, well, we can't trust people with liberty because we don't know that they're going to behave themselves. And there, I come back to something I remember Sheldon Richmond, who I think works for the Future of Freedom Foundation now, posting on social media one time. He said, just because you can't trust other people with liberty doesn't mean they can trust you with power. And that's the discussion I think we need to have a little bit more frequently is not 
will people make bad use of liberty? Because a lot of people will, and a lot of times we do. But the reason I'm a libertarian, for example, is not because I think that people will make perfect use of liberty all the time, but because people have demonstrated that they will almost always make very, very poor use of power. There's something else there, and I'm thinking about quotes again. H.L. Mencken is said to have remarked once that fundamentalism is the paralyzing fear that somebody somewhere is having a good time. <laughs> to kind of riff on what you were saying a second ago, one might say that modern American progressivism is the paralyzing fear that somebody somewhere is making money doing something. And that, I think, is tragic. I think it's tragic because I think that making money is noble. And it's especially noble when one is making money doing things that save lives, doing yeah. things that make people's lives richer and fuller and better. I don't begrudge Jeff Bezos his many billions of dollars because he earned those many billions of dollars by fundamentally changing the way that people shop and fundamentally changing the way that I do things like watch Shakespeare or Star Wars. Can you begrudge him for some of the billions because it's not all through actual innovism, liberalism, and markets? Yeah, and I'm sure that like some of it comes from yeah, various protections and things like that. But I think that's really looking a gift horse in the mouth because all of us, to some degree, are tainted somewhere by something. And just to take my job, for example, as a college professor, we get a lot of money from the federal government, either directly in the form of grants and things like that, or indirectly through the form of stuff like subsidized student loans. So I think it's really missing the point. I think to go after, say, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or whoever, because, well, okay, they made billions of dollars on government contracts, something to that effect, or because they had at least a little bit of protection or something like that. Yeah. The vast majority, I think, of Bezos's fortune is attributable to innovation. Same story with the Walton family, same story with almost everybody who is on the Forbes 400. Yeah. I think most people don't realize that their problem with Jeff Bezos isn't Jeff Bezos or Amazon, whoever's making all the right. decisions, yeah. you know, all that collective the sum total of how those decisions are made at what Amazon produces and does. Their problem is not really with that. Their problem is with a lot of different people like what's happening, putting their money there. Because at the end of the day, you could say, well, if you don't like Jeff Bezos, if you don't like what Amazon is doing, then stop shopping for, oh, well, that's not going to stop it. Oh, you mean there's other people who like it? We'll get them to stop. Well, but they won't because they like what they have. Okay, now you see the it's, right. it's with other people in the same way that, you know, you and I can complain about all these voters voting for stupid idiot politicians, yeah. even though, you know, you and I could go to the polls and say, well, it's just one vote. Yeah, our problems with other people voting for the people we don't like. It's not with the person per se themselves. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that I, when I think about something like exchange, voluntary exchange. So Robert Nozick famously defended capitalist acts between consenting adults. What other people are doing with their time and their money is, in a lot of ways, none of our business. And it's presumptuous to expect other people to do what we want them to do when we want them to do it. In particular, given that if you look at the average person and you really kind of dig down, most of us probably have a lot of trouble. Like, we have a lot of trouble managing our own affairs. It defies belief to think that we're going to successfully run other people's lives if we're having trouble running our own. But Art, how are we going to go preach the gospel of salvation from sin if we can't just keep focusing on other people's sin? That was sarcasm, just in case anybody didn't oh, get Oh, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. so my, my response to that is something I heard a minister named Tony Campolo say one time. And I've really come to hate the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, mm -hmm. because of this. Because Tony Campolo says, love the sinner, hate your own sin. And when I think about that, and I think about because I'm really, really bad about kind of looking around at the world and saying, oh, everybody would be as stupid. 
blah, 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 blah. These are in my sort of less mature moments. But then I look and say, well, okay, look, the only thing in the world I can do anything about is my own sin, my own actions, my own beliefs, my own, my own efforts. I cannot run somebody else's life for them. And not only is it not my job or my responsibility, I am in a lot of ways sort of usurping an authority that is not mine. If I try or at least presume to run someone else's life. So let's get to the title of the book. It's literally my favorite book title. It's held number one and not that I'm anybody important to identify sure, favorite well. best book titles, but it's the best book title I've ever read. And it's been that way <laughs> since you sent me the copy back in like 2017 or something where I got to read a pre-read. It's leave me alone yeah. and I'll make you rich. Mm-hmm. How the bourgeois deal enriched the world. So that title, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. is just really, really great. Can you explain that a little bit? And what exactly is the bourgeois deal? So that's McCloskey's phrase, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. And actually my former dean suggested that we use that as the title. And so I have him to thank for that. But the idea of leave me alone and I'll make you rich is if you let me innovate, I'm just sort of like a stand-in for the bourgeoisie or a stand-in for people with ideas. Let me innovate. By the time all said and done, I will have made you rich. I'll have made myself rich, pretty obviously, but I will have made you very rich in the process. And so kind of the when we think about what the bourgeois deal is, it's a deal that's kind of unstable. It basically says, let me make money. Don't interfere with it. Let me try something. Let me take risks. Let me keep the proceeds. And then in the end, we all benefit. Mm-hmm. The way that Deirdre puts it, and I think the way that we explain it in the book, is if you think about it as sort of like a three-act drama. In the first act, someone says, okay, look, I've got an idea. Let me pursue it. Let me take the risk. Let me take the risk. And let me, therefore, let me enjoy the profits. Let me bear the loss, the losses. I understand that in the second act, a bunch of people are going to come and try to compete with me. But by the third act, I will have made an enormous amount of money and I will have made all the people around me richer too. And indeed, the economist William Nordhaus in a paper, I think it was came out in the mid-1990s or so, estimated that about 98% or so of the value of innovation accrues to consumers in the form of gains from trade that go to us. So about 98% of, and I'm just kind of looking around my office here, about 98% of the value of the pen that I'm holding or the, the innovations in the pen that I'm holding, the iPhone that's on my desk, my computer, this can of sparkling water that uses hardly any aluminum at all, all this stuff, almost all the benefits have gone to me and people like being in the form of consumer surplus with only a very, very tiny percentage going to the Jeff Bezos of the world. It just adds up more for him because we're all benefiting in, in these smaller ways. It's just a lot of people to have benefited. Yeah. So let's say, I mean, it's what's 8 billion people in the world. Just assume for sake of argument that everyone in the world is $1,000 better off as a result of the existence of Amazon over the course of their lifetime. I mean, that's $8 trillion. And it's $8 trillion worth of benefit. For Bezos to take on 200 billion of that or a few hundred billion of that doesn't really strike me as anything particularly objectionable. The funny thing is, he's not actually taking it home. No, he's not. Some of it's getting reinvested. Some of it's getting completely spent on wasteful things. Some of it's getting spent on things that he enjoys that also provides employment for other people and creative opportunity for other people. It's not like it's just literally going home under his mattress. Yeah. And if it was, it would be reducing the price level. Oh, there's so much to go down that road. I mean, there's so much to go down that road of like, here's an explanation for why things are the way they are, why things aren't as objectionable as it might seem or might feel like Jonah Gold. 
I think you guys take issue with Jonah Goldberg's thing about capitalism is unnatural a little bit, but in some ways it uh, is unnatural in the sense yeah. that like we have this gut reaction to why is this happening this way? Oh, that oh, okay. Like that's where the liberal values of innovism actually <laughs> come in to help us understand it. Okay, though, this is actually a good and enriching thing. Yeah. So like the bedrock principle of exchange, like the sort of ideas that make free markets go, like these are very much kind of embedded in us, but they're in this constant tension with the similar tendency to try to enrich ourselves at other people's expense. Hmm. So I mentioned the sort of three-act drama of the bourgeois deal. And it says, okay, stage one, let me innovate and I will keep the profits. I'll bear the losses. Stage two, people are going to come in and compete. That's fine. Stage three, everybody's rich. Stage two is where things start to get hair because nobody likes competition. Indeed, like I said a minute ago, talking about Adam Smith with the sophistry of the merchants, able to the same trade meeting together without it ending in some conspiracy against the public or some contrivance to raise prices. That's the really interesting question about politics and culture is how do we develop and maintain the political and social institutions that keep us from getting rich and then pulling up the ladder and preventing other people from competing with us or preventing other people from doing the same. I saw a cartoon that kind of speaks to this a little bit in light of kind of what's going on with the problems in the American housing market. There's a cartoon that had a couple of people looking at a home in a new development. It said, our plan is to buy a home and then object to all the other ones being built. And (laughs) that's the kind of instability of the bourgeois deal. It's fine for me to have my house in the area, but I want to then prevent everybody else from that as well. Mm. So kind of like residential nimbyism. That's pretty humorous. Yeah. I thought it was pretty funny. I thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) Residential nimbyism is kind of a nice illustration of exactly this problem. Yeah. Everybody loves innovation in everybody else's industry. But like Milton Friedman said, they all think that their industry has to be protected with tariffs and subsidized and all sorts of other stuff because it's a matter of national security. Hmm. So we've talked about a lot of things in this book. And one thing that is a major theme in like the third section of the book, or maybe it was the second section. I just want our listeners to know that these exist because this book covers all the reasons why not the West or the bourgeois era got rich. And some of those things are slavery, colonialism, unions. If you have a leftist friend, this is a great book to sort of either have for yourself or to give to them. And you guys explain why those are not explanations for how the enrichment actually happened. So I wish we had more time to talk about that, but I want to give you just a minute or so here to talk about your next upcoming book, which I think you, me, and about three other people know is coming, which is called Strangers with Candy. Could you give us a little summary of what that book's about? Yeah, so Strangers with Candy is a collection of articles I wrote for the American Institute for Economic Research and various other places that I kind of went through and reorganized and revised, and it's going to be published by the Libertarian Christian Institute. And a lot of it is kind of like a, my own sort of peripatetic journey through life as an economist, noticing the principles of economics kind of everywhere I look, and then also kind of extendedly meditating on the sheer beauty of an extended order where I'm able to cooperate with strangers to mutual benefit. People who may not like me if they met me, frankly, are there for me when I need a cup of coffee or there for me when I need to get a mortgage or fill in the blank for all of these different things. And this huge pattern of inexplicable cooperation is at the root again of the wealth of nations. 
And so that's a lot of what I'm doing there is talking about, first of all, how strangers make your life better via free market exchange. And then also a lot of ways to not help strangers. And again, this is a, a big part of sort of the Christian prerogative is obviously we want to help people. And we do a lot of things with the intention of helping people. But as economists know and never tire of pointing out, a lot of our best well-intended policy ideas have really serious and really negative unintended consequences. So I believe that's coming out a couple of months from now from Libertarian Christian Institute. And it was a lot of fun to put together, a lot of fun to write, and I look forward to seeing it in print. Yeah, well, we're hoping to get it out before the summer. And so literally, I am the person who can be blamed for it being delayed. Okay. Because it's in my hands right now, (laughs) or I should say on my hard drive. And it's going to be in production here for a couple weeks or months. And then we got to go through proofing and all that. So I hope everybody looks forward to Strangers with Candy. We'll have more information on libertarianchristians.com. And I'm sure Art will have you on before, soon after it's published. And yeah, we're really excited. I'm very excited for it as well. And I know everybody's going to enjoy it. Where can people find you online if they want to look you up and see some of your work? So I have my very poorly and irregularly updated website, artcarden.com, which I've been ignoring steadfastly for a long time. But also I just Google easily. If you go to the Social Science Research Network at ssrn.com and look me up, you can find a lot of working versions of my papers. Go to aier.org. I've been writing a lot for the American Institute for Economic Research for the last three or four years. So there's a lot of stuff I've written there. And again, like I said, I Google pretty easily. So all over the internet, I'm hoping at some point maybe to be a little bit more active on social media, things like Twitter and stuff like that, at Art Carden, if you're interested in following. But yeah, I love what I do. I'm constantly looking for new ways to expand and explain on the basic ideas in economics and would certainly welcome any feedback. Awesome. Well, Art, I appreciate you joining me here for this conversation and I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.